Today we are jumping into Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, a short passage. And uh, so while you're turning there, before I read the text, let me remind you of the context. Um, Paul writes these words from a prison in Rome. He's chained 24-7 to a rotating guard, and he's, he's stuck there in prison with a death sentence hanging over his head. To make matters worse, the church he's writing to is in deep trouble. They're experiencing religious persecution, and which of course leads to financial hardship. To make matters worse, there have been these false teachers that have arisen within the church and are teaching heresy and threatening to lead the people of God away from the truth of God. And to make matters worse, there's not unity in the church, but instead there's discontent. People are fighting, people are arguing with one another, strained relationships. It seems like everything is falling apart. And in that situation, Paul writes this letter that is so full of joy and hope and peace and optimism in the gospel. And we'll pick it up in chapter four, verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Lord, bless this word to our hearts today. Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts. Let us leave here changed by your word that spoke creation into existence. Speak to us, transform us from within. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We love that verse, don't we? That last verse, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's one of those like Christian slogans. It's one of those things we put on our Christian t-shirts, Christian bumper stickers. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I remember this guy at Gold's Gym. He had this shirt and he was like bench pressing 250. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. There was this group called the Power Team in the late 90s. Do you guys remember them? Yes. Okay, so I have a youth pastor that actually became part of the Power Team and they were rocking the, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And they take a phone book and rip it in half. And the youth group would go, ah! <laughs> they take a wrench and they bend it on their head. And everybody would go, ah! And my actual, my former youth pastor, Steve, he's in the Guinness Book of World Records because he held a bungee cord on the top of the stratosphere in Las Vegas, Nevada, as somebody jumped off and came back up. So you better believe you can do all things <laughs> through Christ because you strength. Is that what Paul is talking about here today? <laughs> is he saying you can do anything you want? That God is some kind of supernatural genie. He gives you the power to fulfill any task your heart longs for as you bend his power to your will. Is that what Paul is saying? No, of course not. We love that verse, but I think if we're honest, what that verse is really pointing to, the context of that verse is something we're a little less comfortable with because we realize that the context Paul is talking about 
is contentment. It's not us bending our God to our will, but it's actually our God bending us to his will. And Paul is saying that God will give you all the strength for the mission he's called you to. Which brings up the question, what if I don't like what God has called me to? What if I don't like the situation I'm in right now? Aha, that's why we need Paul's insight today. Because Paul claims to have found, he says, the secret of contentment. And that secret results in hope and joy and peace that make up this letter. What is the secret of contentment? In our culture, we have kind of two views of contentment, two popular views, the materialist view and let's call the other the minimalist view. The materialist view says the secret of contentment is having more. And the minimalist view is the secret of contentment is having less. The materialist kind of identifies with the famous billionaire John D. Rockefeller, who was once asked, um, how much is enough to be content? And his answer was, just a little bit more, right? That's the materialist view. But the minimalist would identify more with somebody in popular fiction, one of my favorite characters, Tyler Durden. Anybody? Fight Club? Yeah, Fight Club. And Tyler, I love what he says in this this little excerpt from the book. He says, you buy furniture, you tell yourself, this is the last sofa I will ever need in my life. Buy the sofa. Then for a couple years, you're satisfied that no matter what goes wrong in life, at least you've got your sofa issue handled then the right set of dishes, then the perfect bed, the drapes, the rug, then you're trapped in your lovely nest and the things that you used to own, now they own you. So the minimalist solution is to simplify. Live off the grid, cut up your credit cards. In fact, hack the system. Blow up the buildings that host all the credit card information. And I don't know about you, but I see streaks of both of those in myself. The minimalist in me says, in order to be content, I really need to get out of the city. And then the materialist in me pipes in and says, and you need to go to Vegas, right? (laughs) Which is where I was last Sunday. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to answer that. Plead the fifth. She asked if I won. I think there's some of that in all of us, though. Paul says, though, that both streaks are wrong. He says that he's learned to be content both having more and having less. And that the secret goes deeper than circumstances. The secret is not in more. The secret is not in less. The secret, according to Paul, is in Christ. Now that may seem pretty pious, vague, maybe, maybe a bit impractical. And that's why we have to study this today. So you guys ready? We're gonna talk about just what is the secret of contentment. Four main points we'll talk about the meaning of contentment, the mystery of contentment, the mastery of contentment, and the motivation for contentment. You can tell I'm a preacher because I love alliteration. So let's dive in. We'll spend most of our time on the first one, then we'll chop through the last three quickly. Meaning of contentment. What do we mean when we talk about contentment? How do we define it? Well, contentment, it's kind of difficult to pin down if you really think about what contentment is. It's easily misunderstood. It's probably a lot easier to understand what discontentment is. We all know when we're being discontent, when we're grumbling, complaining, feeling envious about what somebody else has. No matter how long we've been walking with God, we're like Nick Jonas and 
we still get jealous. <laughs> I practiced that all week. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's that restlessness in our soul, that, that discontent. Discontentment is when you're unhappy with your circumstances. And the question is, well, does contentment then mean that I have to be happy with my circumstances? And the answer is actually no. Not really. That's not exactly what contentment is, according to Scripture. So let's, let's clarify it by walking through what contentment is not. Number one, contentment is not denying your hurt or disappointment. The Apostle Paul is not telling us to be stoic. He's not saying, hey guys, look, be like those guys that lay on a bed of nails or walk across hot coals and they feel no pain because they've so meditated, they've put away that part of themselves that feels pain and, and they never experience it. Paul's not telling us to deny the reality of our hurt and disappointment. He's also not saying that contentment is not liking everything that's going on in your life. I don't think Paul liked everything that was going on in his life. He doesn't say, you know, it's been really great here the last couple years in this damp, dark dungeon that I've been in. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say he liked it. And I don't think God expects us to to like our problems or struggles. Contentment's not liking everything that happens in our life. And, And three, contentment is not settling for less than things ought to be. I remember I was in school, uh, high school, and I was a straight-A student. Then algebra came along. Yeah, I, it's horrible. Algebra's of the devil. Sorry, okay, for those that like math, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I soared in geometry. I did great in that, but algebra was horrible. Ruined my life. Uh, I had great grades on my report card, um, and all of a sudden I get this D in the mail, and I'm an optimist. I'm like, well, that's a, that's a passing grade, right? Not to my parents. Right? The moment my parents saw the report card, I, I knew my contentment with that grade was inappropriate. My dad pulled me aside and said, son, you can't settle for less in life. And that's really what we see here in Paul's life. Paul has a number of things in his life, as we all do, that weren't up to par. And they caused him a ton of discontent. Areas where he wasn't perfect, areas where he wasn't complete, right? And back in chapter three, remember what he said? He said, chapter three, verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul's saying, I haven't arrived yet. I'm not all that I'm supposed to be. I haven't attained it. I don't have everything together. So what do I do? I press on. The very idea and motivation for Christian growth flows out of a healthy, holy, divine discontent. No, I'm not perfect. I won't be until Christ returns, but I refuse to settle for less than things ought to be. I press on, I push forward with all my strength toward the goal of perfection. Those who become great musicians do so because of a healthy discontent. They're not going to be satisfied with a bad performance. The best students, artists, athletes, you and your vocation, whatever your profession is, contentment is not settling for less. Contentment is not denying the hurt and disappointment. And contentment is not liking the problems. So what is it? Well, in order to understand it, let's uh, hop over to another place in Scripture where Paul uses the same Greek word, translated here as contentment. It's the word autarkeia. 
And he uses that word when he writes to Timothy in uh, it's 2 Timothy chapter 6, verses 10, uh, 6 through 10. You guys might recognize a couple of these verses here. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is what? The root of all kinds of evil. Yeah. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So Paul is dealing with money here as he writes to this, this church, just, just as he did, as he writes to Timothy, just as he did in Philippians 4. And he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. But what does Paul point to that causes people to plunge into ruin and destruction? What is this thing that we should be mindful of here? He says, what? The love of money. Not money itself, but the love of it. The Rockefeller attitude of not having enough. Always reaching for more. Greed is a silent killer, isn't it? I say it's a silent killer because, honestly, I don't think anybody in the world really believes they're greedy. Nobody thinks we're greedy. Like, if you kill somebody, you know you killed someone. But we all, many of us, struggle with greed in our society, and I think one of the reasons is because we compare ourselves to everybody around us. And when you compare yourself to people in your same socioeconomic strata, there's always going to be people with more. There's always going to be people who give less. So I must not be that greedy. Doing pretty good. And um, so greed's not like other sins. I like what Tim Keller says. He says, greed isn't like adultery. Nobody sits up in bed and says, wait a minute, you're not my wife. See? He doesn't say it. He says a little more sedated than that. <laughs> Greed is a silent killer. It sneaks up on you. You don't know you have it until it's too late often. So what's the cure? Paul points to it. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. So greed is loss. Contentment is gain. Greed, if you're greedy, it's kind of ironic. If you're greedy, you want more and more and more, you end up losing. But if you're godly in your contentment, you end up gaining. So contentment is the opposite of greed. Let's, one more place Paul uses this, this word. I love it. It's in 2 Corinthians 9. Again, Paul is talking to the church about giving, just like Philippians 4 and 2 Timothy. And he writes to this church at Corinth, beginning with verse 6, and he says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then at this point, I think Paul recognizes that some people may object. Some, some people may say, yeah, it's great to give and all. I, I love giving, but I don't have a lot of money. I've got bills, you know, all that stuff. So Paul throws in verse eight and he says, and God is able, God God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That phrase, having all sufficiency, is the same Greek word, autarkeia, as Philippians 4, that's translated contentment. 
And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that as you give, expect God to be giving to you so that at all times, in all ways, you will have all that you need for God's mission in and through your life. We're not talking about heaping riches to ourselves. We're talking about God using us for his mission, using our finances for his mission. You see what Paul's saying? How he's defining contentment? Contentment is being confident that you have and will have all you need for God's plan and purposes in your life. Do you believe that? Are you content in your life right now? Do you believe that God has you exactly where he wants you? That's the meaning of contentment. Next, what is the mystery of contentment? Paul says there's a secret of contentment. What is the secret? Let's go back then to Philippians 4 and see how that definition fits into what Paul's saying. Remember, Paul's in prison, he's in chains, and he says, I've had times when I've been in need, times when I've had plenty. I've had times when I've been well-fed and times when I've been hungry. I look back at the experiences of my life and I notice there are times when I've had more, times when I've had less. Notice he doesn't say, I like being hungry. I like being in need. He doesn't say that. He says, though I may not like it, I know I have from God all that I need to face whatever circumstances he's placed in my life. How does he know? What's his secret? Well, he says, here's the secret of contentment. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, I can make it through because God's got me. I'm content in any situation God brings into my life. I'm sufficient for any circumstance that God sees fit to place me in. Any problem, any difficulty, because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. In him, I have all the resources to measure up to any test. I can face anything. I can handle it. I can overcome it because here's the secret. Christ gives me strength. Let me illustrate this for you. Um, Some of you know I'm kind of mathematically disinclined. Um, I'm very discontent with my mathematical abilities. If my kids come up to me, I get even more discontent because I don't have a way to really help them. My daughter's doing this thing called common core math in high school. We didn't have common core math. What is that? I'm so not up to the challenge of helping her with that. And so, I mean, I can add tip on a bill at a restaurant and I can count the days until my next date night, but (laughs) that's kind of the boundaries of where my mathematical abilities stop. Now, if one of my kids come to me and they say, hey, dad, would you um, explain to me the theological principles involved in the Reformation? I feel really content. I feel up to the challenge of that one. I can cope with that issue. I can handle it. See, in one situation, I can't cope. In another situation, I can. In one situation, you know, I, I, I've got what it takes and I know it. In the other situation, I don't. So when I'm sufficient for the task, for the problem, I experience contentment. And that's how Paul is using the word here. Saying when I'm facing a challenge, a trial, a testing, in that I'm confident. Why? Because God in Christ makes me sufficient for it. So for Paul, it means, hey guys, I don't like being in this jam, but I know that by Christ's power, I can handle it. 
And for you, it may mean saying, hey, I don't like my financial problems. I don't like my singleness. I don't like the way my marriage or my family is going right now. I don't like my physical health problems. I don't like my pressure at work. I don't like it. But I know through the strength I have in Christ, I can cope with it. I can handle it. I can deal with it. I don't have to give up or give in or throw in the towel or crumble under pressure because I know I have everything I need in Christ for the situations he's placed in my life. You guys believe that? Yeah. Now, you may look different on the other side of it. God may be using that circumstance to change you, to to break you down so he can build you back up. God may be calling you to do something that's impossible for you to do on your own. He may be calling you to bear a burden that's too heavy for you to carry on your own, right? But it's not your strength, it's his. It's the strength of Christ. And in his strength, you will make it. So how are you responding to your situations? Let me ask you some questions real quick. How are, are you asking God for help? Simple, right? How many times do we forget to do that? Are you reaching out to him? Are you letting him be your savior? Or are you trying to do it all on your own? See, contentment means that in the midst of whatever obstacle you're up against, you say in the midst of it, I don't like it, but you never say I can't handle it. You may feel down, but you never say I'm out. You may feel struck down, but you never say I'm destroyed. You may feel hard-pressed, but you never say I'm crushed. You may feel overwhelmed, but you never say I'm defeated. Because the Apostle Paul says that there is available to you unlimited resources of strength in your relationship with Christ Jesus. The moment I say I can't cope, I can't handle it, I'm failing to draw on the resources available to me. I'm looking to my own strength, not his, right? I'm, I'm not putting my confidence in my strong deliverer and I'm missing out because I'm not trusting my savior. Do you realize what you have available to you in the Holy Spirit? Do you realize what's yours? The very power of God that shaped the world into existence dwells within you to give you strength for his mission and purposes in your life. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, that raises a very important question. How can I experience that sort of contentment? How can I be content? And the question comes up because contentment doesn't come naturally to us. I mean, let's be honest. I don't think it came naturally to Paul. This guy was really intense. He was, he was an action-oriented person, highly motivated. Don't even begin to think that he was like just happy sitting there in prison and in jail. No, he wanted to be out preaching. He wanted to be out visiting the churches that he poured his life and his heart into. This contentment did not come easy for him. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, I have learned to be content. So Paul's saying, I didn't wake up one morning and bam, God zapped me and I was just super content with life all of a sudden. He's saying, no, life's a classroom and I've been learning. Through every struggle, through every difficulty I've walked through, God has been working contentment into my life. It's a long process. It's a process. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why God brings these problems into our life. 
Because it's in the process of wrestling with difficulty, down in the trenches of life, that we learn what real contentment is all about. Now let's see if we can learn from the Apostle Paul how he's mastered contentment. Point number three, let's look beyond just this text and into the context. You guys remember back in verse eight that Kenny covered last week? I'm gonna read it again. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. Right thinking is the key to contentment. I find it extremely significant that cognitive words such as thinking, considering, regarding, remembering, knowing are the key words in this letter. In this short letter, just four chapters, those kinds of words are used over 55 times. The thrust of Paul's letter is this. Contentment has nothing to do with my circumstances, but contentment has everything to do with how I think about my circumstances. Here's Paul in prison, plenty of negative things that he could think about, but the things that are negative are only going to drag him down, aren't they? Do you, you guys ever think about negative things and somehow you just feel encouraged by them? <laughs> no, negative things drag us down. And they would depress him, they'd discourage him. So he says to us from experience, take, take a lesson from Paul at the end of his life. Be very careful what you're going to think about in tough situations. Be very careful what you think about. Don't keep that DJ spinning negative records in your head. All right? Take charge of your thoughts. The, Paul says elsewhere, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. There are certain things, certain thoughts that will come into your mind from the enemy and you're tempted to see your situation through the eyes of fear, through the eyes of negativity, eyes of doubt, eyes of distrust in God's love for you and God's plan for your life. But Paul says you can't afford to let your mind dwell there. You can't afford to let your mind dwell on anything less than the gospel, the grace of our God, his love for you, his sovereignty. And you might be thinking, yeah, but am I, am I just supposed to ignore my problems? Like, do I just put my head down in the sand and act like my problems are magically gonna disappear? Absolutely not. No, look at the context. Paul faces up to his problems. Every time, let's, let's walk through a few of them because he, he, we see this, he, we're gonna see he doesn't hide from his problems, he doesn't pretend they're not there, but at the same time, in all the problems we could list off in the Philippian church, at every point, He thinks through the truth of God's word. He claims the promises of God. He sees those situations through a gospel lens. Everybody say gospel lens. Yeah. We need to get our gospel glasses on today. That's what we need. Okay? For for Paul, for example, he faced up to the problems of the church in Philippi. Here's a church that was in serious trouble. It looked like it was falling apart. These Christians he loved were just going to go astray. And he faces these problems how? What's he keep in his mind? The grace of God. The grace of God that brings salvation and is saving these Christians from start to finish. Look at what he says. I mean, he's got hope and joy in the middle of that situation. Look at what he says. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. 
But Paul, they're fighting. They hate each other. What are you talking about? Joy. Why? How? Here's the truth. He says, being confident in this, that he that began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Paul's facing the problem of the church, but he's facing it and he's seeing it through a lens of the gospel. He's seeing it through the redemptive work that God is at work doing. I don't know if you know this, but there was a time in your life when you were in a downward spiral to destruction, but now, since God has saved you, if you're in Christ, you're on a redemptive arc. God is redeeming your story. There's hope for every situation because you're in Christ. The work that God started in you, he promises he's going to finish. That's good news. He also faced the difficulty of being in prison. He faced it. He dealt with it. He prayed through it. And then he says this, I know God's in control and I know God's loving. He's a purposeful God. This didn't catch God off guard. God's not like, ah, crap. Paul's stuck in prison. How did that happen? I turn away for one second, turn back around and Paul's in prison. God's not surprised by Paul being in prison. Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And because of this, I rejoice. He faced up to the possibility of his own execution. With that like looming over his head, he focused his thoughts on what for him was life and what for him death meant. What did he say? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm gonna go on living in the body, that's great. I can keep ministering. But you know what? If I die, I'll be with the Lord. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. So it's a win-win. How did Paul get to a win-win facing his own death? Because Paul chose to see his life through a gospel lens. And guys, I, I'll confess, I struggle with this. I face things all the time in my life, and I'm like, how can any good come of this? There's no way God can turn this around for my good and his glory. I listen to that broken record of doom just playing and replaying in my head. But the truth is, guys, if you put on those gospel lens, they show the lies for what they are. The lies can't hide in the shadows anymore in our thinking the moment we put the gospel up and see all of life through that and shine a gospel light down into our heart. It frees us. The truth will set you free. What's the Bible say? They will know the truth and the truth will what? Set them free. Yeah. Somebody needs to put their gospel glasses on today and see their circumstances through the lens of Jesus' love for you and his plan for your life. That's how you master contentment. Trust your Savior. Believe the gospel. Be confident that in him you have and will have all you need for God's plan and purposes in your life. But we can't stop there, and we'll wrap it up with this final point. Because if we just stop there, all that I've said to you is bad news. Everything I just said is bad news, because all we've said is, hey, here's a broken part of your life, and here's how you can fix it. Be content. See your life differently. You can fix it on your own. You know what that does? That shows us the way of salvation is just being content and I can be my own savior if I do it. That's not good news. That's a law that'll crush you because none of us are perfectly content all the time, are we? 
Can any of us see all of life, every situation through a gospel lens 100% of the time? No. Can any of us not complain 100% of the time? I've tried it. I've tried it. It seems like I get worse at it the more I try it. I complain about not being able to complain. It's weird. And if we stop at the law, what we do, and we don't get to the gospel of grace, all we've done is put an unbearable burden on our shoulders. But there's good news today. It's good news that what we can't do in our weakness, Jesus Christ did for us. And I, I, I'm going to read kind of a lengthy quote, but I pray that it just melts into your heart like butter, like rich Irish butter. Okay? Thomas Watson, the Puritan preacher, lived in the 1600s. This is what he has to say about this. And just behold the beauty of the Lord in this. Let this melt your heart. He says, let us compare our condition with Christ's upon the earth. What a poor, mean condition was he pleased to be in for us. He was content with anything For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He could have brought down a house from heaven with him or challenged the high places of earth, but he was content to be in the wine press so that we might be in the wine cellar and to live poor so that we might become rich. The manger was his cradle, the cobwebs his canopy, He who is now preparing mansions for us in heaven had none for himself on earth. He had nowhere to lay his head. Christ came in the form of a pauper who being in the form of God took upon him the form of a servant. We do not read of any sums of money that he had. When he wanted money, he was forced to work a miracle for it. Jesus was in a low condition. He was never high except when he was lifted up upon the cross. And that was his humility. He was content to live poor and die cursed. Oh, compare your condition to Christ's. Think about that. What a savior to trade places with us. Do you feel your heart warmed when you read that? I mean, if you're a believer, it should stir something deep within you. When we see the gospel of God's saving love for us in Jesus Christ, it warms our heart. It motivates our obedience. It makes me want to say, I'm leaving everything. I'm ready to follow you again. You are my God. You are my Savior, and I'll follow you to the ends of the earth. And the good news doesn't just stop there. Jesus didn't just do it perfectly for us and then say, okay, blank slate. Now you try but he lived a perfect life in our place and he died a death so that we'd be forgiven and he gives us all of his goodness. He gives it to us. Isn't that good news? And he doesn't stop there. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. He said, it's better that I leave because the Holy Spirit will come. The same Holy Spirit that hovered over the waters of creation, the same Holy Spirit that empowered the ministry of Jesus. The same Holy Spirit that's at work right now in this room, confirming the word of God to your heart and applying it. That Holy Spirit is living within you daily to empower your obedience to Christ, to fill you with contentment. The law says do. Be content. You gotta do it. Muscle up. I can't. That crushes me. But the gospel says Jesus did it for you. 
He was perfectly content every time you failed. And the Spirit empowers us to obey. So I want to ask you guys today, as we come up, we're going to receive communion. We're going to turn some tunes on. And in groups of two or three, um, I, would just, I would just love if we get together and kind of ask ourselves these questions as we rest in Christ's finished work, okay? In what areas am I not content? And this is great because with Christ's righteousness and you being forgiven of all your sins, you don't have to hide. You get to actually confess this stuff around other people who are just as broken as you and share in the good news of the gospel together and just feast on it. That's what communion is. It's a feast on the grace of God. So let's proclaim the gospel to one another. Ask yourself, in what areas am I not content? Where am I not seeing my life right now through a gospel lens? Through the atoning work of Christ on my behalf. And then believe, how can I find Christ in his provision? to be enough for me? How can I stop looking outside of God and his will for my satisfaction? How can I be content with Christ's strength for me? And what do those areas of my life look like if I start looking through a gospel lens? We get to come up here and repent, confess, and believe the gospel together. And if you're new, it's your first time here, and you're like, I'm not used to it. I've never done that before. I want to invite you. Just come on in. Join in a circle. You don't have to say anything. If you're really uncomfortable with that, I'd still love to meet you outside here afterward and and talk to you and and get to know you. But I'm just going to pray over us real quick, and then we're going to come up and receive communion together, gathering in groups of two or three, and just confess and believe the good news one more time. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the good news of your good son and what he's done on our behalf. I pray that every one of us here today would really believe the gospel, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time that maybe in a couple weeks when we get out the bay, some of us may even get baptized because we haven't been baptized yet and take on this new identity in Christ. Lord, I, I pray that we would rest today in Christ's finished work in the gospel. And out of that profound rest that we would press on in your spirit, pray we'd be discontent with the amount of contentment we have in our life, that we'd press into our loving Savior who has all that we need for life and godliness. In Jesus' name, we pray.